Okay, folks, while Paul and I are building the new show, don't worry, it is coming soon. It's time to look at someone you've got a bit of an obsession with, mate. Tell us about the Duke of Northumberland. Yes, that's right, because a lot of people uh, like to focus on Lady Jane Grey, but I want to talk about the man behind the woman, the Duke of Northumberland. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd. But my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks. Now, look, these days we like to talk about good cop and bad cop, and in Tudor times, Paul, it was more a matter of good duke and bad duke. That's right, Mikey, yeah, and particularly with, I want to talk about the reign of Edward VI, 1547 to 1553. Now, that's not one that we often concentrate on, but I've got a hero for you today by the name of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. Now, yeah, in English history, he's been vilified as the Wicked Duke. A bit like the Wicked Uncle Richard III, so demonised by that Tudor propagandist known as William Shakespeare. But we are in Tudor times, Paul, so whereabouts are we? Well, um, like most things Tudor, Mikey, we need to go back to Henry VIII. Ah, so we're talking about the Reformation? No, Mikey, that's the thing, you see, because just like Henry actually didn't care much about religion, neither should we. Henry, all he really cared about was women, wine and wonga. Um, wonga, I'm assuming, is an obscure British term for cash? That's right, Mikey, and to be fair, my potential hero for today, Dudley, a lot of the time wasn't that far behind him. You know, he's soon known as one of the players in Henry's court. He's uh, the knight of the king's body, he's the master of the tower armoury, and contemporaries say that he was the most skilful of his generation, both on foot and on horseback. So, yeah, just like Henry was the hunting, shooting, fishing king, yeah, so Dudley, yeah, he liked his archery, his jousting, and the two of them, actually, Mikey, very much enjoyed playing cards together. Well, actually, but I'm glad you mentioned that, because you know Henry VIII had a lot of nicknames, not all of them flattering, but one of them was England's number one gambler. He was what we call in Australia a mug punter. He loved playing a game that was a precursor to poker. In fact, mate, he actually used to go into poker tournaments. I mean, could you imagine Queen Elizabeth going on Joker Poker and saying, you've been bluffing all night, we're going all in. In fact, his gambling was so bad, he once lost the Jesus Bells, which were in the original St Paul's Cathedral, over one roll of dice. But enough about Henry VIII. Tell me more about Dudley. Well, fortunately, Mikey, my man John Dudley was a bit more of a card sharp than Henry. Um, but for this story, we need to actually go back to his father, Edmund Dudley, who was part of the administration under Henry VII. He was basically Henry VII's tax collector. So Henry VIII, when he comes to the throne, he actually has Edmund Dudley executed because by this stage, his old man, Henry VII, is well known as a bit of a miser. He's quite unpopular at the end of his reign. So Henry VIII, to curry favour with the people, sees the execution of Edmund as a good opportunity. So John Dudley actually starts off life in a very poor position. But this John Dudley is a very determined young man. So he's able to get back in at court. He regains his lands. He becomes a loyal servant to Henry VIII. And he soon gets promoted to the Earl of Warwick. 
Earl? I, I thought we were talking about a duke. No, he's not the duke yet. The, there's only one duke at this stage, and that duke is the Duke of Somerset. Now, hang on. Isn't he the good duke? That's right. He's gone down as the good duke in history. He's Edward Seymour. But actually, Mikey, he's just your typical English aristocratic old fart. And it's only because he's the brother of Jane Seymour, who, of course, was Henry VIII's third wife, that he's appointed the Lord Protector for young King Edward. In actual fact, though, Mikey, he's a complete buffoon. Yeah, he's not a good duke at all. And his brother, Thomas, is even worse. He's a real howler, yeah? Uh, First of all, he gets caught for inappropriate behaviour, touching up teenage Elizabeth in her bedchamber. He then makes a power grab against his own brother, and he tries to abduct young Edward um, to become his puppet king. Hang on, I think I know this story. Isn't that where he actually shoots young Edward's cocker spaniel? (laughs) That's right, Mikey, yeah. He shoots poor Edward's dog to stop it from barking while he's trying to kidnap the young king. So, in the end of this story, both of these brothers, both of the Seymours, will get executed, and for good reason. Because today, there's only one potential hero. It's John Dudley, the rising star of court. Okay, folks, so today we're talking about John Dudley, the man who will become the Duke of Northumberland. He's caused quite a stir in the young Edward's father, Henry VIII, but, mate, he's got to be more than just a, a party boy. That's right, Mikey. We mentioned before about his prowess on horseback. He very much made his name in the military, and then in 1537 under Henry, he actually gets transferred um, to the Lord Admiralty, he becomes Lord Admiral, and he transforms the English Navy into the most efficient uh, fighting machine in Europe. Yeah, he's, he's right at the forefront of tactical thinking. He introduces the squadron ship system, the manoeuvre formations, coordinated gunfire, all this kind of stuff. He very much becomes the leading military man of his generation. And in fact, in 1547, the Duke of Somerset needs him to save the day at the Battle of Pinky Clough um, against the Scots. And that's actually the last ever pitched battle, Mikey, between the English and the Scots um, on British soil. Um, and then in 1549, he's needed again to put down the Ketz Rebellion. And it doesn't take long before most of the Privy Council think that he should be in charge rather than Somerset as the Lord Protector. So, just to recap, Henry VIII dies in 1547. Young Edward becomes king at the age of, what, 10? Somerset is effectively regent. Then, in 1549, we get this coup to oust Somerset. And as I said, it's not just Dudley who thinks that Somerset needs to go. It's also people like the Earls of Southampton and the Earls of Arundel, who actually are the leading Catholics of the day. There's even talk of perhaps restoring Catholicism and abandoning the Reformation altogether. OK, Paulie, uh, you're losing me here. You said at the beginning this wasn't a big religion story. But if he's jumping in with the Catholics, that's got to have some bearing, hasn't it? Particularly as... Doesn't he go down as some sort of religious zealot or, or evangelist? Well, that's the thing, Mikey. The history books tell us that. But actually, I just think he's the arch-pragmatist. His only belief system is, you know, the real politic. Um, because of what he wants to do, he wants to become the Lord President of the Council, which he becomes in 1550. But to do that, he needs to outflank the Conservatives, people like Southampton and Arundel. And he needs to keep people like Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, keep those reformers and the progressives on side. So he allows... All the liturgical reform that Cramner wants to put forward. He has the, the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, you know, radicals like John Hooper, John Ponnet, even Knox. Um, but Dudley, I think, he knows full well that the Reformation is still actually 
pretty unpopular. Most of the people in England are still Catholic with a small C, if not a large C. But for him, it's all about the ends justifying the means. So what you're saying is that at this stage, with Edward still expected to become king in his own right one day, there's only really one overriding goal. Keep the ship afloat and keep everyone on side until the boy is old enough to finally take control. That's right, Mikey, because actually what he does, just to add yet another counterbalance and protect the king's position even further, he organises for Somerset to get released. You know, Somerset's been put in prison after the coup, but he reintroduces him to the Privy Council. He allows him back into the King Edward's Privy Chamber. And in fact, in June 1550, he organises for his son and heir, John, to marry Somerset's daughter, Anne, as a sort of, you know, the classic reconciliation. This, after all, is still the king's uncle we're talking about. And with both young Edward's parents now dead, in many ways, Somerset is the king's closest relative. But unfortunately, it doesn't take long for the Seymour colours to be shown again. And Somerset backstabs Dudley and he makes a power play to grab power back for himself. And Dudley's left with no choice but to arrest him and execute him. But even then, Mikey, he's smart enough not to have him executed until he sat on the council to agree his second promotion to the Duke of Northumberland in October 1551. So, mate, what you're saying in terms of Renaissance politics, it, you know, Northumberland's up there with Machiavelli. Yeah, well, he is, Mikey, but I think it's unfair just to say he's a schemer because once he's got power, he oversees this massive economic revival and he ensures prosperity and stability when, of course, England could have been in real danger. Because you've got to remember, Mikey, um, back in Tudor times, we all like to think of Henry VIII and these guys as the big players, but really... You know, on the continent, you've got Francis I, you've got Charles V. Spain, France, the Holy Roman Empire, they were much, much bigger than England. They were much, much wealthier than England. Henry VIII, he was very much the third of three um, in the pecking order. And of course, that financial weakness wasn't helped by Henry VIII's warmongering, which is carried on by Somerset. Just to give you an idea, Mikey, those wars against France, against Scotland, they were enormously Expensive. Yeah, we're talking about £350,000 per annum being spent by the Crown when the income for the Crown was only £150,000 per year. Look, mate, I'm no fancy economist, but from what you're saying, by the time young Edward comes to power, the um, best way I can put it is that the uh, English economy is up shit creek without a paddle. Exactly. So Northumberland, he makes it his number one priority to balance the books. He withdraws the garrison from Boulogne. He makes peace with France. He actually persuades Henry II, the new king of France, to pay England £180,000 for the privilege. And as you said, Mikey, Edward very much needs that money because not only does he inherit a knackered economy, in 1549-1551, we have the three worst harvests of the entire century. So you've got soaring food prices and poverty across the nation. So Northumberland tackles that. He tackles the middlemen. He tackles the, the, the people who are hiding all the corn and pushing up the prices. He attacks uh, the landlords with their illegal enclosures. Yeah, but also to read about that time, doesn't Northumberland also take control of the mint? Yes, Mikey, and that's a key point, because under Henry VIII, the debasement of the English currency had been diabolical. Uh, yes, uh, that's the story of old Coppernose, isn't it? That's right. You know, the, the silver coins were so bad that if you scratched Henry's nose <laughs> on the back of them, all you'd find is copper. That's right. So 
the Thumberland, he centralises the administration. He brings in new financial and bureaucratic experts, people like you know, Thomas Gresham, William Cecil. And by the end of Edward's reign, Mikey, the whole of Edward, King Edward's foreign debt has been eliminated. And he's even found time to go back to his Navy buddies. And he, you know, he's talking to people like Cabo, um, helping them on their expeditions over to America, and Willoughby on his voyage to find the Northeast Passage to China. Yeah, that sounds great, Paul, but I've got three words for you. Lady Jane Grey. Okay, fair enough. Now, (laughs) yes, Lady Jane Grey is a key element to this, Mikey, and of course she is. But unfortunately, as each day passes in Edward's short reign, it's firstly another word that's on everybody's lips. From a whisper to a deafening roar. Succession. So first of all, of course, the idea is to try and find young Edward a wife. Elizabeth Valois, the six-year-old princess from France, is mentioned. Mary, Queen of Scots, is even mentioned. To your woman, Lady Jane Grey. Now, Lady Jane Grey, Mikey, she's actually Edward's cousin. She's third in line for the throne. So she's not just some nice girl they found in the provinces. She's the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister, Mary. And she's the daughter of the Duke of Suffolk, a big player, and Mary's daughter, Frances Brandon. And let's not forget, mate, she was also Protestant, which for a lot of people meant that she wasn't third in line. She was first in line. Yes, that's right, Mikey, because for a lot of people... Edward's sisters, of course, are only half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. They are illegitimate, yeah? Now, Edward, he's actually brought them back on side, but legally, they are in a very difficult position. Mary, her mother, Catherine of Aragon, don't forget, she, she was married, before she married Henry VIII, she was married to Henry's older brother, Arthur, who died at age 15. And there was a question of whether Arthur had consummated the marriage, which would make any marriage to Henry, void. Then with Elizabeth, you've got Parliament. They've actually annulled the marriage between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn once Anne Boleyn gets the chop. Um, And don't forget there as well, Mikey, that whole Boleyn faction was very, very unpopular at court and remains so. So Edward and Northumberland, they decide that rather than let Mary or Elizabeth inherit the throne, England would be better off if both are bypassed altogether. So Dudley and the young king, they come up with a solution. And the solution is Edward's device for the succession. Now, the whole idea of this is stability. What they want is a male heir. They don't want to go back to the chaos of the War of the Roses. They don't want even to have a queen necessarily on the throne because, of course, the last queen that was on the throne in England was Matilda um, and with her and Stephen. Ah, yes, of course, uh, the anarchy. Yeah, I remember that. But but getting back to Edward, with with him being sick, I mean, the clock's ticking, right? Well, that's right, Mikey. There's not really going to be time enough for Edward to marry. There's certainly not going to be time enough for him to produce a male heir. So now Northumberland turns his attention to Lady Jane Grey. Now, no one's offering the crown or saying that she should be queen, but this device of Edward and the Thumberlands, this change in Edward's will, orders that if and when Edward does die childless, Jane's sons and heirs will carry on the Tudor line. But she's still single, right? Correct. And she's only a girl herself, 1617. But Northumberland realises it's her only chance, and he sets about finding a new marriage for her in the hope of producing a boy. So he actually gets his son... Guildford to marry Lady Jane. Guildford? I mean, that sounds like the Beckhams in Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly, Mikey. Yeah, named after some sort of tryst somewhere outside southwest London. So <laughs> in May 
1553, the marriage takes place. Um, it's actually a triple wedding um, with um, families from the Earls of Pembroke and Huntington just to consolidate everyone's position. And Edward, he's too sick to attend the weddings, but he does pay for all the wedding dresses and he is very much on side. But Northumberland realises that even with this marriage in place, they're not going to have a male heir in time. So he gets Edward to tweak his will so that it actually nominates Lady Jane to become queen while they're waiting for the pitter-patter of tiny feet. But you know how I mentioned before about him being the arch-pragmatist, Mikey? He also, at the same time, goes to the other end of court and talks to Mary's faction and restores her coat of arms and restores her title as the Princess of England. I see, that's what I've always thought about him. He's a guy who likes to hedge his bets. Yes, he does, Mikey, but as I said, for good reason, because unfortunately, on the 6th of July, 1553, Edward does die at the age of 15, and now Northumberland's got to make his move if he's going to ensure that peace is maintained. So he sends his son, Robert, up to Hertfordshire to secure Mary, but unfortunately, Mary's got the jump on him. She's already moved to East Anglia, uh, where she's the greatest landowner in the region, and she's managed to assemble her own private army. So she sends a letter to the Privy Council demanding to be recognised as Queen so that when, on the 10th of July, Northumberland proclaims Lady Jane Grey to be the new Queen of England, at the same time, the Privy Council has turned on Northumberland, jumped into bed with Mary and declared her to be Queen too. And, and then, of course, you, know, you get to day nine of young Jane's reign. And the rest is history. So, mate, I, I want to go back to your man, Northumberland, you know, Dudley. I mean, ultimately, was he a failure? Look, he didn't win, that's for sure. And clearly, he wasn't prepared for Mary's resolute action or the fact that the common people of England would rise up so loyally to support her. And by the way, Mikey, in terms of that support, she actually had a lot to uh, thank her mother, Catherine of Aragon, for, but that's, that's another story. Northumberland, of course, is convicted for high treason and he goes down in the history books as the unscrupulous schemer but a lot of that comes down to Mary's narrative and the, the story that she and her court need to put out because obviously she needs to stamp her authority as the new queen. She may, needs to make sure there's no reaction. So it's in her interest and everyone's interest to blame it all on Dudley, say that John Dudley was the wicked duke. <laughs> and that's when Somerset gets painted as the good duke just to make sure that no one's left in any doubt. Yes, and in terms of the history books, Mikey, unfortunately, my man John Dudley is doubly damned. I mean, it's not just the Catholics and the Conservatives in Mary's reign who go against him. Of course, later on, it's the Protestants and the Progressives. Because, you see, when he gets convicted for high treason, Mary goes to him in person and asks him to renounce the Reformation, to recant and to come back to the Catholic faith and take Catholic communion. Which is exactly what he does. Ah, so that's why he's missing from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Precisely, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the outcome was actually a very close-run thing. And just to, to prove my point, Mikey, you know, I mentioned William Cecil before. By the end of Edward's reign, William Cecil was the Secretary of State, and he'd actually told Northumberland he was fully behind the Lady Jane Grey plan. But he switches horses at the last minute, goes to Mary's side serves under Mary, and of course under Elizabeth, goes on to greater glory, and for 40 years is the main power broker in the country. So what you're saying is that Northumberland's only real sin was backing the wrong horse. Right. 
But I'm glad to say that by coming back to Catholicism at the last minute, he was actually able to play his last card. Because you see, he never forgot what happened to his dad with the change of regime and to how that could transform a family's fortunes. So by doing that recantation, he saw a way of possibly rescuing his family and saving them from the axe. Because, yeah, okay, Guildford had to go um, because, you know, he'd married Lady Jane. And he had a stupid name. (laughs) Right. But by publicly disavowing Protestantism and the Reformation, he was able to spare his son, Robert, who then became the Earl of Leicester under Elizabeth, um, her favourite and closer than any man got to actually becoming her husband. And of course, if that had happened, my man, John Dudley would have gone down in history as the only person to have had two sons to marry two different queens of England. (laughs) 